Hello and welcome to the Sustainable Futures Report for Friday the 18th of March. Energy is in the news. Energy is always in the news. It's inextricably linked with emissions and the level or absence of emissions determines the outcome of the climate crisis. Nevertheless, it's time to talk about something else as well. Okay, I did promise to tell you about space energy, so we'll look at that. George Monbiot is launching a new book, Regenesis, later in the year. I've asked the publishers for a review copy and invited George to be a guest on the Sustainable Futures Report Wednesday interview. I'll let you know what they say. Next week's Wednesday interview is with Wake Smith, who opens Pandora's Toolbox. It's full of tools for geoengineering. For the moment, though, I'm going to look again at Deep Adaptation from Jem Bendel, at the pressures in the UK to reject net zero, news of the continuing weather crisis in Australia, Finland's new nuclear station, sorry, that's another energy story, and hydropower by truck, that's energy too. And there's a fabulous city of the future planned for the desert. First, though, what's all this about energy from space? The Space Energy Initiative, launched last week, promotes the UK's Space-Based Solar Power, SBSP, project, delivering electricity to the grid even at night. The way it works is by having mirrors in space at a level where they are always in sunlight. They'll focus the sun's rays onto a geostationary satellite, which will convert the energy into microwaves and transmit them to a receiving station on Earth. The power of these microwaves is too low to cause damage to people or aircraft passing through the beam, but when collected and concentrated from an array of antennae, the energy is converted into electricity and fed into the grid. The collection array would be spread over an area of land, but this would be significantly smaller than the area needed for a wind farm of equivalent output. A single system is expected to deliver about 2 gigawatts, about the same as the average power station. It would deliver its energy 24-7 and therefore would be ideal for supplying baseload. And, of course, there would be no emissions. The idea of space-based solar power has been around for some time, but until recently, the cost of delivering the equipment into space has been far too expensive to make it viable. A report to the UK government issued by the Fraser Nash Consultancy towards the end of last year suggested that costs have now reduced to a level to make space-based solar power realistic. The plan is to have an orbital demonstrator in place by 2031 and an operational system by 2040. No short-term solution then, but certainly something worth developing. It might even come to fruition before nuclear fusion. Let's talk about deep adaptation. Dr. Jem Bendel is a professor of sustainability leadership and founder of the Institute for Leadership and Sustainability at the University of Cumbria in the UK, as well as founder and former coordinator of the Deep Adaptation Forum. Back in 2018, he wrote a paper entitled Deep Adaptation, a Map for Navigating Climate Tragedy. 
The principal message of the paper is that humanity faces an inevitable near-term societal collapse due to climate change. In other words, it's too late to prevent most of the consequences of the climate crisis. Bendel suggests that there is widespread collapse denial, and therefore no academic studies have been carried out from the starting point that collapse is inevitable. If you've been following the science as I have for the last 20 years or so, how many times have we heard the mantra, but it's not too late, or we still have time? Bendel says, some people consider statements from academics that we now face inevitable near-term societal collapse to be irresponsible due to the potential impact that may have on the motivation or mental health of people reading such statements. My research and engagement in dialogue on this topic leads me to conclude the exact opposite. It is a responsible act to communicate this analysis now and invite people to support each other. He examines denial and quotes a researcher who finds that denial is rife within the environmental movement, from dipping into a local transition towns initiative, signing online petitions or renouncing flying, there are endless ways for people to be doing something without seriously confronting the reality of climate change. I wonder if doing a podcast like this is simply urging others to confront the reality of climate change rather than actually doing so myself. In 2018, the paper was rejected for publication by reviewers of Sustainability Accounting Management and Policy Journal, partly because the reviewer believed that it would be wrong to dishearten readers by sharing the opinion that we face inevitable near-term societal collapse. Collapse denial in action. In fact, the paper was widely read elsewhere, leading to the foundation of the Deep Adaptation Forum, a mutual support network to help people across the world cope with the radical changes to society which the climate crisis will bring. Four years on, the movement continues. There is now a Scholars' Warning Initiative, which, among other things, issued a letter signed by academics from 30 countries criticising the ineffectiveness of COP26 and its undue influence by corporate interests. Bendel calls out journalists for deliberately manipulating attitudes on the pandemic and warns that they are doing the same on the climate. If you're concerned about the consequences of the climate crisis, you can find a link to the Deep Adaptation Forum on the Sustainable Futures website. Even if catastrophe is truly inevitable, let's not stop working to mitigate the consequences. Or you could deny that the climate crisis is happening. I've mentioned before that there's now a net zero scrutiny group in the UK Parliament. Membership is very similar to the Covid recovery group, which lobbied against lockdown and face masks, and the European research group, which brought us Brexit. Members are calling for an end to green subsidies and levies, and for the restart of fracking and coal mining. Nigel Farage is associated with the movement. You'll remember that while he has stood for election to Parliament on numerous occasions, he has never been elected. Some say his supporters have taken over the Conservative Party. They certainly delivered the Brexit referendum that he agitated for for decades. Apparently he's now calling for a referendum on net zero. Bring back King Canute. Seriously, let's not underestimate his campaigning power. 
it's been clearly shown that his success doesn't need to be based on facts. Meanwhile, in Australia, exceptional weather may no longer be in the headlines, but the consequences are still with us. Although the Prime Minister declared a national emergency in two states last week following floods, Jane Stabb and Lena Herrera-Pirkarski of Climate for Change, based in Brunswick, Victoria, are mounting a campaign calling on the government to do more. If you're in Australia, you're urged to write to your Member of Parliament and to request your Climate Action Now pack from Australian Conservation Foundation. Links on the Sustainable Futures website. Each pack contains five signs and five stickers for you to display, hand out and generally promote. I'm surprised that the ACF hasn't put these designs on the website so people can download and print them themselves. The Australian Bureau of Meteorology points out that while there has been exceptional rainfall in the east of Australia, at the same time there has been exceptional drought in the Northern Territory. This is believed to be the result of the current La Nina situation being reinforced by climate change. And back to energy. Moving on to energy stories, the first is about the opening of Europe's first new nuclear station for about 15 years. Olkiluoto 3 is up and running and is expected to reach full power of 1.6 megawatts in July of this year. At that point, it will supply 14% of Finland's electricity. This plant uses the same design as two units currently in operation in Taishan, China, as well as the plants currently under construction in Flamanville, France, and Hinkley C in the UK. En Kyoto 3, Flamanville and Hinkley C are all severely delayed and have incurred massive cost overruns. There have been technical issues, but the Taishan plants have been running safely for some years. I've been sceptical of Hinkley C for a while, as regular listeners will know. Apart from the delay and the soaring cost, the price guarantee agreed with the government was at an index-linked level about twice the wholesale price of electricity at the time of signing. It will always be significantly more expensive than wind, but unlike wind, it'll be able to produce a constant output 24-7 to satisfy base load. Electricity produced by nuclear can replace electricity produced by gas, which strengthens the nation's energy security. My final story today about energy is about an imaginative variation on hydropower. Hydropower conventionally involves a dam filled by rivers and the water is released into turbines which generate electricity. Hydro can in some cases be used to provide a steady supply to cover baseload, or in other cases it can be released very rapidly reaching maximum power in only a few seconds in order to deal with short-term peaks in demand. Anthropocene magazine draws my attention to a paper on Science Direct entitled Electric Truck Hydropower, ETH. The way this works is for trucks to fill up with water at the top of an incline and to charge batteries on their way down by using regenerative braking. At the bottom, the water will be released and the battery be removed for connection to the grid. Or the vehicle carrying goods could continue on its way under battery electric power. Alternatively, the vehicle would exchange battery and water tank for empties and return to the top of the hill. 
The system would be most suited to parts of Asia or South America where roads descending from mountain ranges extend downhill for mile after mile. In areas like this it can be very difficult to find suitable sites for hydro dams. The ETH system uses roads which already exist. The authors believe that the cost would be only about half that of conventional hydroelectricity and the electricity generation world potential for the technology is estimated to be 1.2 petawatt hours per year or about 4% of global energy consumption. Investment will be considerable, but unlike a dam, it doesn't have to be complete before the system starts producing power. Once the grid connection and water supplies are in place, trucks can be added to the fleet as funds permit. I reported in a previous episode on a similar gravity-based generation system. This used an inclined railway track with a very heavy train on it. As the train descended, it generated electricity, again by regenerative braking. When there was surplus power in the grid, it was used to take the train back up to the top of the incline again. The difference between this and the truck system is that the train will need a new dedicated track, whereas the truck system, as I've noted, just uses existing roads. And finally, NEOM. Have you ever said, we are where we are? Or, if I were going there, I really wouldn't start from here. In other words, wouldn't it sometimes be nice to start from scratch in a situation where that just isn't possible because of costs, resources and other circumstances? I've just come across the city of Neon. It's going to be built in the desert of Saudi Arabia. The idea is to create something which will be the ultimate in urban planning, which is something I'm sure all local architects would love to do if they had a clean sheet or a clean site, but Almost nobody has that opportunity. The core of Neom will be the line, a linear city 170 kilometres long when it is eventually complete. It will run in a straight line along the coast of the Red Sea, although parts of it will be some distance inland because, of course, the coast of the Red Sea does not run in a straight line. The city will be built in modules where almost everything will be within a five-minute walk. There will be no cars, no streets, no emissions. All transport and all services will be underground, beneath the line. All power will be renewable. As far as I can tell, construction has not yet started, but plans are extensive. There's a link to the project website on the Sustainable Futures website. I wonder what the carbon footprint of constructing a 170 kilometre long city will be. And that's it for this week. Thank you for listening to the Sustainable Futures Report. I'm back on Wednesday with the Wednesday interview. I'm Anthony Day. Bye for now.